Welcome to Millennial Wisdom with Dr. Jennifer Wisdom. Millennial Wisdom is a listener's journey with powerful insights about your work and your life. Now, here's your host, consultant, coach, speaker, and best-selling author of the Millennials Guide series, Dr. Jennifer Wisdom. Hi there. Welcome to Millennial Wisdom. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Wisdom, and this is where we talk to millennials and the millennial adjacent about what is important in millennials' lives. I am so excited to have with us today Dr. Michelle Gill. She is a professor at University of Central Florida, and she just published Millennials Guide to K-12 Education. Welcome, Dr. Gill. Hi, Jen. It's great to be here. Thanks. We're so glad to have you here. We always like to start with, tell us your path. So tell us, what do you do and what was your path to get here? So I'm a professor of education at the University of Central Florida. My specialization is educational psychology, which is the psychology of how um, people learn and how to teach. I chose that path because I wanted to help teachers. I was a former public school teacher myself, and I wanted to go back to graduate school and understand what we could do to help teachers because I knew how important teaching was to helping kids become their best selves. And I saw the power of great teaching and the power of not so great teaching. So I've been in my job for about 18 years. And during that time, not only do I have I taught teachers, but I also coordinate a doctoral program for people getting their education doctorate who are looking to be teacher leaders or industry leaders in training and instruction. Mm-hmm. After I got tenure, I realized that teaching teachers was very satisfying, but they would get into these school systems and they would revert back to how they had been taught. It was like everything we taught them disappeared somehow. (laughs) And it wasn't just because they forgot. Some of it was due to stress for sure, but some of it and a lot of it was due to the systemic influence of schools that made them revert back to what was comfortable because it's what the school wanted. It it wasn't a place for them to try the innovations that we were teaching them. It was a place for them to repeat the status quo. And that was so (laughs) discouraging to me. So discouraging. Yeah. I um, realized I didn't, wasn't making the difference I thought I was. So I um, had in my naivety, in my twenties, I had written an undergraduate thesis about educational philosophy and history and really looking deeply at all the different paradigms, all the kinds of educational systems since the time of Plato. I was just looking at it all. And I had a pretty good idea after that of the direction schools ought to go. This was a long time ago. It was in the late 80s. I'm just, I'm a Gen Xer right into millennials here. But um, <laughs> because I feel like I want to pass on that wisdom. I wish I had had this wisdom when um, I was younger and when I was a new parent. And I've learned a lot in my years since. So anyway, in my naivety, I, I wanted, I dedicated the book to trans, my thesis to transforming public education in the, in the United States. And I've never, it just never left me this idea that I wanted to um, change schools. So after I got tenure, I thought it was time um, to actually change a school system, that that would make a, di- that would be more powerful. If I could create a school, I could create an environment where teachers could have the freedom to do the things we were telling them they ought to be doing. And so I did that. Schools turned out to be very successful. We just opened up a second branch of our school, the Galileo School for Gifted Learning. And um, I'm so excited by the good things going on. And it's not rocket science. Like you don't have to do all these crazy things or spend all this crazy money. You just have to have a kind environment that's attuned to basic psychological principles of how to treat human beings. 
And I put that in a book for parents. <laughs> I was like, if we can't change school systems, parents can be the one that can change things. And millennials, my goodness, they have so much energy and passion and power and voice. And so I was hoping to inspire them to take up the reins and um, call for change. Yeah. Change. And I think it's going to get done if, if it comes from parents. I don't think it can come from teachers. They don't have the power that we think in this country. It's, it's going to it's got to come from parents. So your book is Millennial's Guide to K-12 Education, What No One Ever Told You About How to Help Your Child Thrive in School. You mentioned you wanted to target millennials because they are folks with kids right now in K-12 education. What else is there about millennials that's really important for us to know? Well, first of all, they're really busy. I mean, the millennials I know are trying to raise kids and work and have almost too much information. So because they have that, I found that they have a hard time sorting out what is the gold. And no one has time to read tons of research articles. Most of them are paywalled. So I feel like one of the things I do well is I'm a good curator. I'm going to curate the most relevant research and put it in this bite-sized bits, like a guide that parents can easily pick up and read. So millennials, like I said, are very busy, but also very passionate. Unlike my parents' generation, they... They just accepted the status quo and millennials challenge it. And yeah. so I I'm, I'm want to empower them to challenge it in a way that's the most effective for their children. I love that. And as I'm a Gen X as well, and basically parents just drop me off at school, like school's going to take care of it. And yeah. any problem, I needed to work it out. <laughs> so I love that millennials are so much more um, involved in their kids' education, really wanting their kids to get a, a very good education. And I love that your book really speaks to them around if this is the problem your kid's experiencing or this is the concern you have as a parent, here are some things you can do. In Millennials Guide to K-12 through Education, you made what you called an audacious recommendation for how schools ought to be. Tell us about that. How, how ought schools to be? Let me just say chapter five is my indulgent chapter. It's a <laughs> chapter where, as opposed to all the other chapters, which are very much based in research and very um, objective kind of chapters, chapter five is where my voice really comes out and says, okay, based on my experience, based on my research, based on being a mom, based on being a public school teacher and a teacher, this is what we know about what schools ought to be. And it's mm -hmm. audacious because it's a bold vision. Um, first, though, I think the same principle that we tell medical doctors, first, do no harm. First, do no harm. Schools surprisingly have tremendous power over children's development. In fact, in Erickson's theory of lifespan development, it's industry versus inferiority that schools are the ones that can most affect and turn kids on a really negative trajectory in seeing themselves in, as inferior. As a former math teacher, I see it especially in mathematics, but it's in writing. For me, it was in physical education, PE. I was mm -hmm. laughed at, so I had developed a belief that I was not athletic at a very young age. And that's a tremendous power that schools hold. So first, mm -hmm. do no harm to the extent they, they can do no mm -hmm. harm. Mm -hmm. Then build on kids' strengths. We tend to have a deficit model in current U.S. schooling. We're always testing students and seeing what they lack. We do very little assessment of what they already know. And what we know from leading theories in psychology, everything from Vygotsky's zone of proximal development to Csikszentmihalyi's flow theory, we build on children's, when we build on anybody's interests and mm -hmm. current skill set and just challenge them just slightly beyond that 
that's where the deepest engagement happens, the deepest motivation happens, and their achievement happens. We're so worried about achievement, and achievement is at a standstill in this country. So focusing mm -hmm. on deficits, I think, is the wrong direction, focusing on strengths. And that mm -hmm. aligns with what's going on in the positive psychology movement. Promote optimal development. I don't know if parents know this, but child development has been weeded out of a lot of teacher training. What's been going on in this country, we've been pushing subject matter expertise, again, in that quest for achievement. So, for example, I've seen um, undergraduates have to take three courses in reading, and we have to beg for them to take even one course in child development if they get that in, in their training. So I think that's very detrimental. I teach graduate level courses in child development, and we have existing teachers come to those classes and say, why did I not learn this stuff? I need to know this. This is what I mm -hmm. really need to know. So um, I would push for teachers to have a strong foundation in child development to be able to be teachers. Mm -hmm. And that the goal of education shouldn't be just trying to get certain test scores, but promoting optimal development in a variety of areas for that child so that they, you're, you're facilitating that child's optimal development. My next point builds on um, Todd Rose's amazing book called The End of Average. And it goes back to Michelle's idea. Here I am throwing out. I can't get rid of the psychologist. I love it. Dan. I love it. This is great. Please put all the references here. Okay. But <laughs> it's Person in Context. Um, there's a 2007 book called Person in Context that talks about how personality and who, who we are is really dependent on our context. Some, some situations may cause me to be extroverted. Others may cause me to be introverted. So it's not like I'm just an introvert. The situation matters. The same for children. Some situations may bring out their best. Some may bring out their worst. They're, they can't be lumped into some kind of average. And trying to aim instruction towards an average is really detrimental. It doesn't help anybody. There is no true average. That's a leftover um, way of thinking based on the industrial age when we had to have some kind of factory model and, and make things according to some average. But we don't need to do that anymore with all the incredible tools we have with the internet and um, the knowledge we have about personalized learning, it's much, much easier to differentiate mm -hmm. instruction, to treat children as individuals. What motivates one kid will not motivate another kid. We know that from behaviorism, like rewards don't work if they're not intrinsically reinforcing to the individual. It's not a group kind of situation. Right. So psychology knows this, schools don't quite get this yet. The other, um, about, okay, I'm about halfway through my audacious recommendations. I still told you they were audacious. Be places where all stakeholders, all stakeholders, students, teachers, staff, administrators, and families are treated with dignity and respect. I've seen, um, I just don't see that as being taken for granted as the given. That should be like the foundation of all schools. It should not even be a question. I've seen parents treated horribly at schools, but I've seen teachers who are treated horribly by parents. There should be some kind of foundational rule of uh, just value system or rule of thumb or norm in the school that that no behavior that is harmful or aggressive or hurtful is just not tolerated, not tolerated. I think that I did, we, we at Galileo, we call it, it's very simple because it's a K-8 school, but we say kindness rules our hearts. Kind, it's the kindness and nurture principle. And we expect everybody to follow that, board members, staff, principals. So I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, another one of my recommendations is that schools ought to be places of wonder, exploration, and can I even say it, fun for not only students, but for staff and teachers too. One thing we do at Galileo School is the afternoon is devoted to creative productivity time. We have these 
kind of block periods where students can pick, kind of like sign up for their first choice. They get a two week unit. And then that those happen at multiple points during the year. And for example, the teachers have a say in what CP classes are offered. So we had a teacher, for example, who loved to sew. She got some sewing machines donated just to borrow um, from parents and had the students, whoever wanted to sign up to sew, sew. And boys signed up and sewed monsters and face masks. <laughs> Girls signed up and designed dresses for like rent the runway type thing. And it was a very popular class. We've had um, comic book creation. We've had teachers who like rock band and will have a rock band. They'll play drums in their classroom. So when you tap into awesome. teachers' interest and passion, the classroom comes alive and students get to sample different teachers' interests. And you also make room for the children's wonder and their interest too. And both of that together can make a school that's just dynamic. Um, I also think we need to give consistent opportunities for students to experience flow or challenge, like I was saying before, <laughs> that idea of flow. Montessori schools do that really well by giving a block period, usually in the morning, and some will do it in the morning and the afternoon, a three-hour period. Because of the way our schools are structured and because of the bureaucratic way we count hours, that makes it really hard to have creative periods of time for students to work. It's hard to do a long block of learning. So that is something that some schools are experimenting with. Even here where I live in Central Florida, I know my school's experimenting with it. There's a high school experimenting with it. It's very exciting for students, really dynamic places. You're not just having a bell ring, like in a factory, 50 mm -hmm. minutes, you're done. For <laughs> right. Who, who could work that way, you know? I also think we need to give voices and choices to both students and teachers. I'm a huge fan of um, self-determination theory. We know that people are really motivated when they have a sense of autonomy, when they have a sense of voice. They are, have some ability to control some part of their environment. And too often these days in the United States, teachers are over-controlled, told what to do, even to the point of being told what page to be on on a particular day, regardless Thanks. of what's going on in their classroom. Wow. It's the same thing. So that's not helpful. And it's, again, that factory model, and it doesn't, it misses a whole lot. And it's mm -hmm. certainly boring for children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My last two ideas, one is to be focused on problem solving. A problem solving pedagogy is engaging. You can do it in all subjects, math, English. It's just that idea of curiosity and presenting problems and activating students' imaginations, as opposed to just presenting material didactically. Mm -hmm. And finally, treat teaching as a real profession. <laughs> When teachers yeah. are burnt out and overwhelmed and stressed, they're not going to give their best to kids. They can't. They're just funk barely functioning. And they're they're not treated like any other profession. What other profession can't take a bathroom break in the middle of the day right. except at lunch? What other profession has no, um, at their level, has no ability to have access to administrative services to help them with any of their paperwork? Who has mm -hmm. to purchase supplies for their classrooms out of their own paycheck? Right, but right. Things would go a long way help making schools better places for students and teachers to thrive. Yeah, I love it. These recommendations are incredible. Also, so I'm sure a lot of parents are listening to this thinking, yeah, I would love for my school to be like that. What are your suggestions for parents to help them get their schools to, to be better and to help their kids um, have a better fit with their schools and to be more successful in their schools? I would love to change individual schools, and there are lots of things parents can do, but I found that 
sometimes you just have to change the school environment. And in these days, it's a lot easier than it ever used to be. We never even had school choice um, when I was growing up. You went to the neighborhood school and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, me too. But now there's school choice. So if possible, and I give a lot, there's many chapters on that, on what school choice options are available to you. Many of them are within the district itself. They have magnet schools, they have virtual schools, they have special academies. So that's a possibility. And then you can go outside the district to charter free public charter schools or um, different kinds of private schools. So there's lots of different options. There's pod schools, micro schools. The options are really endless. But if you cannot change your child's school, then I give lots of recommendations in my book for ways to work with your child's classroom teacher, to work with the principal, and to work with your child themselves. Because the child can be talked to just, I mean, they're human beings. You can just talk to them and say, hey, this is a pretty you know, difficult situation right now. You're not having a lot of fun in school. What can we do outside of school? And I have a whole unit in my book about educational enrichment options for kids. Mm-hmm. I think they're grossly underutilized. I think parents don't realize how powerful enrichment is. I mean, a a quick story from my own son's life. He um, wasn't sure what he wanted to do. He was not sure about, um, you know, he liked computers, but he wasn't sure if he wanted to do it. There was no options in his middle school to really pursue computers. So we started putting him in camps that had different kinds of things, robotics, ones, you know, um, uh, CAD software. I think that's kind of an electronic architecture program, just different kinds of things involving um, computers and computer programming. And he actually ended up liking coding. That was his thing. But it took a few tries. We even tried like filmmaking and slow animation, but it was the actual coding. And I wouldn't have figured that out because he wouldn't have had a chance to even try coding until high school. He got to find it out at a young age such that by ninth grade, he was in some very fun STEM classes doing, um, creating his own little mini computer games with his own code. And that was great. That just changed his life. He ended up becoming president of the computer programming club. He's now in college and that's his major. And that came from him just getting to explore his interests at a young age, just a few summer camps and a couple weekends at some things. So I think parents, a targeted and maybe thoughtful approach to educational enrichment can help. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this is making me think about for parents who have limited means and may not be able to afford to send their kids to camp, what are things that those parents can do to make sure that their kids get as much as they can? Yes. And I have, again, in the book, I have all these links. And I want to say that those links, if they ever, because, you know, links are not eternal. So the links will always be kept updated on my website. So um, I keep them, I keep them there. I have lots and lots of free resources. In fact, I organize the resources by cost. I don't think parents realize how many things are free. First of all, schools offer low cost camps. Mm -hmm. Many schools will offer very low cost or free clubs. My son, my younger son right now is in an art club. Mm-hmm. So right after school, it doesn't have to be much time, 45 minutes once a week. Um, and they just paid for the art material. Very, very low cost. Many schools will have scholarship options for kids for those in-school camps. Mm-hmm. There's online resources. There's online animation. There's online coding, code.org. There's mm-hmm. math. There's all kinds of things. And I think I put it all from cooking to, like I said, to animation. It's all uh-huh. there's many free options for parents. That's great. That's great. So as, as you're thinking about millennials and how millennial parents can help their kids in K through 12, what final piece of advice do you have? 
I, I like saying this and it seems very simple, but I need to remind myself of it. And if I, as a psychologist <laughs> and teacher need to remind myself, then I think we all need to, those of us who are parents need to remind ourselves of this. And it's listen to your child and take their concerns seriously. We get busy. And sometimes we just hear our kid complaining and we're just like, oh, just it was worse than my day or, oh, don't worry about it. Right. And we can be dismissive. And our kids know when things aren't right, when they're not, when they're going off a healthy path, when, mm -hmm. when school's really hurting them. And I have a chapter again in my book about signs to look for, things to look for that are maybe milder complaints, complaints and more serious complaints to use as a diagnostic tool so you can know hmm, okay, this is getting more serious. What are some options I have here? So I kind of grade up the level of intervention yeah. that you would do. And yeah. I think that's super important. That has been the thing I think that has most helped me with my children. Wonderful, wonderful. And for people who are interested in purchasing your book, where can they find Millennials Guide to K-12 through Education? It's on Amazon and it's on Barnes and Noble and it's, <laughs> it's hopefully coming to a bookstore near you. So Perfect. Um, yes. Great. Check it out. So Dr. Michelle Gill, tell us how can people reach out to you? They want to get well, in touch. So the, some of the more of the book information is at my website, which is michellegregoiregill.com slash K12 Thrive. And you can also find that link very easily on my Instagram or Twitter. And that's at Ed Psych Prof, E-D-P-S-Y-C-H-P-R-O-F, Ed Psych Prof. And I keep my links to the book and the book website there. Perfect. Love it. Love it. Love it. This is fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gill, for being here. Thank you for writing um, the Millennials Guide to K-12 Education, for becoming part of the Millennials Guide family, and for sharing your wisdom with millennials who are parents to help them help their kids thrive just all around. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to see you, Jen. Great. Great to see you, too. So this has been another episode of Millennial Wisdom. Check us out at millennialsguides.com and leadwithwisdom.com and absolutely check out Dr. Gill's website at michellegregoiregill.com slash k12thrive. We look forward to another episode of Millennial Wisdom coming up soon. You've been listening to Millennial Wisdom, where we talk to you about your life, journey, and your insights of the world around you with host, Dr. Jennifer Wisdom. To learn more about the work Dr. Jennifer Wisdom does, please visit leadwithwisdom.com. Millennial Wisdom is sponsored by the Millennials Guide series. You can pick up your copy wherever books are sold or visit Amazon or millennialguides.com.